I uh, want to mention to you something that I read from the Voice of the Martyrs that I find to be quite interesting, if not uh, apropos for this time. It's a little article that was sent by email from the Voice of the Martyrs entitled, We Need to Destroy It. <clears throat> Excuse me. Som Shi is an outcast in her village in Laos. Even family members have turned against her. And when villagers found the Bible in her home, they proclaimed, We need to destroy it. They believed the Bible was causing her mother's illness. My villagers still hate me and mock me, like they mocked Jesus on the cross, some she told Voice of the Martyrs. It is the world's right to hate us or to love us, but for me, I will follow Jesus. In restricted nations around the world, Bibles are burned, shredded, or confiscated every day. Those opposed to the gospel can destroy Bibles, but they cannot destroy the faith of those like Somshi. I would encourage you to consider that kind of heart today. A heart that says, you can take and destroy everything that I have, but you cannot take my faith away from me. And I encourage you to pray for Somchi and Christians in all of these lands where their faith is constantly being challenged, constantly being uh, threatened, their lives, their families, their homes. So I encourage you to get on the website Voice of the Martyrs. You can. Type the search engine. I think it's uh, vomusa.org. And uh, stay up on what is taking place around the world with Christians today. We don't want to take things like that for granted. But we do want to give a testimony and a witness. And we want to certainly be a voice for those who are suffering for Christ in greater ways than we'll ever know in this country. I'd like for you to turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 4. And this morning we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 of Genesis chapter 4. But I'd like to read verses 1 through 15 this morning. Most of us here are familiar with the story of the birth of Cain and Abel and what took place in their lives after the fall of man, after the fall of their parents, Adam and Eve. We begin in looking at verse 1. It says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall, not, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. The Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Shall we pray? Father, we ask for your blessing this day upon our hearts and upon our minds, the blessing of your Holy Spirit that we may come to a greater understanding of this text today. The things that we have been learning and are learning and will be learning in this book of Genesis, we ask, Father, that you would continue to grant us light. Light to understand your word and light from your word to our hearts so that light will shine from our hearts to those who are in darkness but also that that light would shine before us as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we may walk, Lord, in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. Lord, these things we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, some of you may remember your English literature class back in the day when you had to familiarize yourselves with some of Shakespeare's more notable phrases, such as, all the world's a stage, and all men and women merely players. They all have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. How many of you remember where that's from? Right? 
everybody. It's from a play called As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 7, Line 139. The things we remember. <laughs> well, we have to admit one thing. Shakespeare was right in respect to the fact that we have many roles to play in life as from time to time we relate to various people and confront different circumstances. But what is important for us to do is to let God write the script. We need to let God write the script. We need to let God choose the cast. And we need to let God direct the action. Because if we disregard Him in any way, shape, or form, and try to manufacture and produce the drama ourselves, the story is going to have a sad and disastrous ending. And you see, that's what damaged, that's what ruined and spoiled and ultimately destroyed Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. Here was the first human born on planet Earth, the initial child conceived on the world stage. And from the account that we find in chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain chose to ignore God's script. And he did what was right in his own eyes. And eventually, because of this, he made a mess of his own life. Every one of Adam and Eve's offering, or offspring, I should say, I'm sorry. Every one of Adam and Eve's offspring, including you and me, were born dead spiritually. Of course, Adam and Eve themselves created by the hand of God. Adam created out of the dust of the ground. Eve taken from the side of, of Adam. Made, fashioned, touched, created in the image of God. But because of their fall in the garden, because of their disobedience toward God, then all offspring following them, except for one. would be dead spiritually. We are obviously alive physically, I think, this morning. But because of the first couple's fall in the garden, mankind is and will be described, as Paul put it, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, this way. He said, And you has he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Who were dead? Notice that phrase. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. We got a little hit of myself. There it is. Okay. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and notice, were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Well, that's not a pretty picture. We were dead in trespasses and sins because of that disobedience committed by Adam and Eve. We are now the children of disobedience. 
And because we followed through in that particular sin, we are now by nature the children of wrath. And I said just a couple of Wednesdays ago in our study of the book of Romans, chapter 1, that you're not a sinner because you sin. I think every Christian needs to understand this. Of course, every person needs to understand this. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You're not a a sinner because you sin. You sin because you were born a sinner. That's why we sin. We were born into this world in sin and with a sin nature. Adam and Eve now could only reproduce after their own kind. After they became dead spiritually in the garden, now they could only reproduce spiritually dead children. Alive physically, but dead spiritually. And everyone born into this world, with one exception, do we know who that exception is? You can say it. Jesus. Everyone born into this world with one exception is a sinner at birth. For even King David himself, the shepherd king of Israel, would say in in, in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Speaking for all of us, this is our testimony. This is our beginning. But hopefully this is not our end. This is indeed our beginning. We have an inheritance in nature from conception. And while Cain and Abel were both born with the same sin nature, their lives were very different. Over the next couple of weeks or so, we're going to see those differences in Abel and in Cain. But their lives were very different. And the major difference we'll discover is that Abel mastered his sin nature. Abel mastered his sin nature while Cain was mastered by his sin nature. That is the biggest difference that you need to see between these two brothers. Abel mastered his sin nature while Cain was mastered by his sin nature. We even find in our text that the Lord encourages Cain to master his sin nature rather than to be mastered by it. Notice in Genesis 4 verse 7. We just read it a little earlier. If thou doest well, God was saying to, to Cain, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou dost not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire. The desire of sin will be to destroy you. But notice what he says, and thou shalt rule over him. In other words, you should rule over sin. You should master or be the master over sin. Now let's remember something very important here this morning. Let's remember that when we look at Cain and Abel, we are really looking at ourselves. When we look at Cain and Abel, we are really looking at ourselves for we were born with a sin nature. But the question is... And this will be the question that you need to ask yourselves today. How can we master that sin nature so that we are not mastered by it? How can we master it so that we are not mastered by it? So we come now to verses 1 and 2 as we begin our study of Genesis chapter 4. And once again we read, And Adam knew... 
Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. For the first time in the scriptures, in the book of Genesis, we see the mention of intimate relations between a husband and a wife. And we see it all in the word new. Adam knew Eve, his wife. And I think it's so significant that he, that, that it's put in that way and in that context. Adam knew Eve, his wife. Because today we have all kinds of words to describe this kind of relationship and most of them aren't really accurate and some of them we can't even repeat. But the idea in this word, new, is not just the act of sex. Although we know that the intimate relationship is a sexual relationship that is being mentioned here because of the context. Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived. And there came. But understand that this word new is not just the act of sex but goes far beyond just that meaning. Because it speaks of an intimate relationship that truly gives understanding to the two, male and female, becoming one flesh. For us to understand fully what God desired and what God planned and what God designed between a male and a female, it is to understand it here in this context. That in an intimate relationship, it gives true understanding to these two, male and female, becoming one flesh. So it's best to look at this in a word study as we look at the word new. The word new in the Hebrew is the word yada, which means to know, to learn to know. Now, by the way, as I'm going through this definition, I want you to understand the gravity of understanding the fullness of this particular word in context to the relationship between a husband and a wife. You are to know, you are to learn to know, to know by experience. To recognize, to admit, to acknowledge, to confess, to consider, to be acquainted with, to know a person, of course, carnally in the sense of, of, of the fleshly aspect of it, but also to know how, to be skillful in, to have knowledge, and to be wise. That's what it means to know someone in that intimate sense. God wants a man to know all about his wife. Some of you guys are looking at me like, I already do. Do you? Do you really? Marital intimacy is much greater than just having sex. If that's what you think it's all about. Because to husbands... The Apostle Peter wrote this in his first letter. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. Listen, and I'm not picking on husbands by the way today because you'll notice it's going to also be the same for wives. But husbands, you're responsible here. You're the responsible head of your home. You need to understand these things. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7, Likewise you husbands, dwell with them. In other words, dwell with your wives. 
according to knowledge. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. Now please don't look at me as if to say, I didn't know that was there. It's there. You are to dwell with them according to knowledge, giving un honor unto the wife. You are to honor her. You are to bless her. And as the next phrase says, you are to guard her, guide her, and protect her. Notice, as unto the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life. And there's reason for this, man. So that your prayers be not hindered. We want God to hear our prayers. Well, then you need to take care of your wife rightly. You need to honor her rightly. You need to know her properly. Know her fully, inside and out. Inside, here, head, mind, heart, and out. Because the word that Peter used for understanding in this passage is actually related to that word we saw in Hebrew, to know. To know, to learn to know, to know by experience, to recognize, to admit, to acknowledge, to confess, to consider, to be acquainted with, to know a person rightly, to know how, to be skillful, in, to have knowledge, to be wise. Is your knowledge based in that way? So husbands, let me just wrap this up here. Husbands, grow to understand your wife God's way, not your own way. Grow to understand your wife God's way. Pay attention to her God's way. Not your own way. God's way. Honor her God's way. By the way, wives, know your husbands the same way. Know them God's way. Grow to understand them God's way. Pay attention to them God's way. See, it works both ways, doesn't it? It needs to. And how much more strengthened will your relationship be, will your marriage be, when you do things God's way? Let's continue. Now, the process of reproduction began for Adam and Eve. Consider the pattern. There was the intimacy, there was the conception, there would be the pregnancy, and then of course the birth. And it wouldn't be hard to believe that the experience for the first parents was one of great surprise and joy. For one, just, just the physical changes to Eve throughout the nine months must have been a wonder in itself. Can you just see Adam every day looking, oh, you're getting a little bigger there, I mean just, you know... Just what's, what's happening here? Something inside of you growing? Well, ooh, you know, it's just this wonder. First time it's ever happened. How are you, husbands? Of course, you knew the process in a sense. But now it was your experience. First time dads, right? Toward the end of the nine months, who's more nervous? Sometimes the dad is. What do I do? What do I do? Where do I go? It's time to go to the hospital. Husband gets in the car, takes off. Why still waiting? Hey. Has that happened to anybody here? I don't think so. 
But there's that wonder, there's that awe that's, that's taking place about this, this great blessing that God has given. And not to mention Adam's anticipation as he could feel movement within Eve as their growing first child would kick as babies still do. But there was more to Adam and Eve's joy than just the pregnancy and the birth of their first child. Because there was the hope of the promised seed. Do you remember that? There was the hope of the promised seed, the Savior of the world. The Lord God had promised that he would send the Savior to the seed of the woman, didn't he? Genesis 3.15, let me read it to you again. And I will put enmity, now this is God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity or hostility between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So they had the promise. And so obviously and naturally they were thinking, well, we've got this promise coming. But what's equally important here was that Adam and Eve believed the promise of God. They believed the promise that God had given them. Adam's faith was so strong that he named the woman Eve, which means that she was the mother of all living. As we said last time, she was not the mother of the dead. She was the mother of the living. That's significant. And Eve's faith is certainly revealed in her statement at the birth of her firstborn. When Cain is born, what does she say? I have gotten a man from the Lord. I have acquired a man from God. And even some Hebrew scholars are saying, in a sense, what she's saying is, I have gotten the Lord. But the name Cain itself literally means acquisition or acquired. And so she believed in the promise of Messiah coming from the seed of the woman. And so her exclamation de demonstrates her saving faith in the promise of the coming Redeemer. Adam shared his faith back in chapter 3 at the end. And now he, we see Eve declaring her faith by saying, I have gotten a man from the Lord. But may I say to you that she was wrong. At least in this sense. And what I mean by that is that she was right in believing that the Messiah would come and that he would be of her seed because she, you know, she of course is the mother of all. And so it was coming from woman. But she was wrong in thinking that Cain was the one. And before long, she had reasons to change her mind. The first baby born into a sin-cursed world soon manifested his fleshly tendencies, I'm sure, his tantrums and his deception and his lies, not to mention his self-will and his pride. But am I just describing Cain? Or am I pretty much describing everybody born into this world? I know that it's every mother and father's desire to hear their, their, their child when they first start to speak to say mama, dada, you know, that's what they want to hear. But eventually once they begin to talk, what do they, what's the one thing that they really concentrate on? Me, mine, mine, mine. And then you realize sin nature what it is. Self-will and pride. And more than likely before long, she, she may have thought that her firstborn son was more likely the, the seed of the serpent. <laughs> Too often as a kid growing up, if I did some really bad things, it was hijo del demonio, you know, you hear that kind of thing, you know, and the son of the devil, you know, that kind of, woo, you know. <laughs> Repent, repent, you know. 
Is it any wonder then that many Bible commentators consider Cain then to be a type of the seed of the serpent and Abel as the type of Christ, the seed of the woman? And is it any wonder that her next son is named Abel, by the way? After the first one coming and, 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 and manifesting all of those uh, fleshly tendencies, she names her second son Abel, which you know, we think it sounds really nice, but it just means vanity and breath and vapor and worthlessness. I think she was nailing down now what happens being born in sin. Funny thing though is that Abel would not fit those particular qualities and we'll see why in just a moment. Notice in verses 2 through 5 and she again bare his brother Abel and Abel was a keeper of sheep but Cain was a tiller of the ground and in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord and Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth. In other words, he was very angry and his countenance fell. Now, first of all, I, w I, w I want you to notice that we're not dealing with cavemen. We're not, we're not dealing with Cro-Magnon or Neanderthal man. This is just kind of a little bit of getting back into our understanding that we're not dealing with evolution here. We're not dealing with, you know, some kind of creature that eventually becomes Homo erectus and stands up straight. They're not cavemen, they're not hunters and gatherers and the like, as some would tell you. We're dealing with the first family and, and all that family entails. We're dealing with a family and, and children that are brought up in more of an agricultural society already. Cain, a tiller of the ground. Abel, a keeper of sheep. Agriculture and domestication, domestication of animals. But we're also dealing with a first family and all that family that uh, it's involved in this family. Uh, nursery squabbles between Abel and Cain growing up. Two unregenerate sons displaying the lawlessness Adam had introduced to the world. The, nat the natural working of the law of sin in his son's souls. But there had to be good times too. There had to be good times too, stories uh, Adam would eventually tell his sons, stories of the first few days of creation, where he walked with God, shared the cool of the garden with, with the Lord God who created him, talked about all the animals that he had seen, all the animals that he named, that God brought to him each day and just gave him the wisdom to name all these animals. What great stories Adam could tell his children. 
There were lessons, I'm sure, in their growing up involving plots of ground to till, animals to feed and to care for, and and possibly outings to the very gates of the garden to see the cherubim and the flaming sword and to receive instruction in the things of God. Because you see, the garden wasn't closed off to them. The angels were guarding one thing, the tree of life. But in essence, what they were also doing was guarding the way. Because within the garden, they had to come. It was there where they would meet with God. It was there where sacrifices could be made, as we shall see in just a moment. And why? Because that is where God had set up the, the altar. When God took two lambs, And sacrifice those lambs. Blood being shed. The skins taken off and put upon Adam and Eve. To cover their nakedness. All in God's plan. To show. The horrors of sin. And why sin even today is still. As horrible. To God. And why we need to come to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And obviously through that instruction, Adam Adam taught Cain and Abel the necessity of worshiping the Lord and bringing him a sacrifice. So this lets us know that these boys knew that there was a God. They knew that there was a God. Our instruction of our children is to bring them up knowing that there is a God. A God who is great and awesome and mighty and powerful, but a God that is merciful and gracious and loving and just and true. They knew that sin was an offense to the Lord. Just by looking at the flaming sword that guarded the way to the tree of life. They knew that he must be approached. That God must be approached, but that with an offering. And I find a few things to be quite interesting here. First of all, Cain is mentioned as the first to bring an offering unto the Lord. Did you know that? Cain is the first one to bring an offering to the Lord. The phrase, and in the process of time, which literally means at the end of days, could refer to bringing an offering every Sabbath at the end of the week. Six days you work. On the seventh day, the Sabbath, you rested. And then the week would begin again. Secondly, I find it interesting that the word used for offering here in this passage is the Hebrew word mincha. That speaks of any type of offering and not just a blood offering. There are those who actually believe, you know, that that uh, you know that it it was a blood offering that God wanted, and of course Abel brought the blood offering, but Cain did not. Therefore, this this is what makes that great distinction in their offerings. But here's the thing: the word for offering here is any offering, any type of offering. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that 
God would only accept blood offered in any great offering he would not accept because we know that he does accept great offering in the law so there's something deeper than that we're dealing with here so if so if God accepted Abel's offering of a lamb and rejected Cain's offering from the fruit of the ground why would that be that was there something deeper at play here there's no doubt that God would accept the blood offering of a lamb since he established that pattern himself in the garden. And I already mentioned it, but verse 21 of chapter 3 says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Can't make coats of skins unless you kill the animals. But we know that God would accept other types of offerings as well, such as grain offerings from the fruit of the ground. So maybe then, it's how they were offered. How were these offerings given unto the Lord? Well, let's turn to Hebrews 11 for some insight into what is going on here. Hebrews 11. And the first two words of verse 4, not only the key, but it's the answer. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. There it is. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Because of his faith, even though he was killed, his life still speaks. Why? Because it was a life of faith. It was a life that trusted God. So what does that say about Cain? It is, in fact, the very contrast to to Abel's faith. Cain did not trust God. Cain did not believe God. Cain did not have faith in God. But Abel did. By faith, Abel offered unto God. Faith was the key principle of Abel's life. Faith was the key principle of Abel's life. His sacrifice of a lamb spoke of his personal trust in the promise of God to save him. He was saved by grace through his personal faith. Saved by grace through his personal faith. And he is the first person, by the way, to be mentioned in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. In other words, Abel's sacrifice was done out of love to please God. When we come before God, it is always because He loved us first. So when we come to Him, we're coming in response to what God had laid down as as really the commandments to man. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love Him. You shall offer to Him your life. And you shall do so to please Him. And He's pleased with your faith. By the way... Cain's offering, though, was done out of duty and obligation. Something that just had to be done. 
how to do this out of duty and obligation I would venture to say that in many cases people go to church once a week only out of duty and obligation got to be done but the rest of the week they don't live in faith they don't live in trust in God but they come to church I'm not saying that to mark anybody here I'm just saying listen carefully did you come here today because you love God, you want to please Him with your worship, with your praise, with your listening, with your attentiveness, with everything that you want to receive from Him so that you can give to Him each and every day. Just that, that attention that he's, he's so worthy of, you know, our, our worship, our praise, whatever just comes out of our lives unto Him. Or did we just come because we felt like we just have this obligation? If we only come with that kind of heart, we're no better than Cain. Cain offered a sacrifice to the Lord. But it wasn't about so much the, the offering itself as it was the, about the heart that offered it. So in essence, if Abel offered this in love to God, to please God, then it suggests in Cain's offering a lack of love toward God on his part. If we only come with duty under duty and obligation... You know, an obligatory visit to God. Is it because we love Him? We have to think about that. You see, the mention of Abel in Hebrews 11 is supported all the more with a statement made in verse 6. If you look at verse 6 of Hebrews 11, if you're still there, I hope you are, it says, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Offerings can be given unto God without people believing in it. Offerings can be given unto God half-heartedly, sometimes non-heartedly, without faith, without any expectation that anything's going to come out of it. Maybe, maybe not, who knows. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Do you believe that God is? Do you believe there's a God? Do you believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? Well, if you do, then praise the Lord. You live by faith. Now Abel is also described by Jesus as having spiritual life. L uh, turn to Luke chapter 11. Now you can tie all this together as you're studying it and remembering two things. Hebrews 11, Luke 11. So here we are in Luke 11 verses 49 through 52. I've added a couple of verses before and after the, the most important part. Because I, I, I want to kind of tie this in again to the heart and the mindset of Cain. In contrast to Abel. So in verse 49 Jesus is speaking and, and he... And he's dealing with the issue of the heart of the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, all the teachers of the law of God in, in Israel. And he says, therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. Well, consider the, the apostles, well, you know, of course the prophets being the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, as, as, as Jesus is clarifying that. But, but they shall slay them, they shall persecute them. What do we know about the, the, uh, 
the prophets of the scriptures that, that uh, were constantly being uh, 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 confronted uh, in a very opposing manner by the religionists of their day. So, so Jesus goes on in verse 50 and says that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. And then Jesus says, from the blood of Abel. What is he saying? First of all there, he's saying, he's, he's calling Abel a prophet. Abel in some sense is a prophet of God, sent for the very purpose of giving forth the knowledge and wisdom of how to approach God. But here he says, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, which I just love, the, you know, just that, that consistency of completeness that God, even taking the English language and taking us from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe unto you lawyers, those who were the teachers of the law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, you entered not in yourselves, and them that were entered in, you hindered. That was quite noticeable in the scribes and the Pharisees in, t- in the time of Jesus. Because everywhere Jesus went preaching, there were always the scribes and Pharisees there to oppose him, contradict him. And what happens throughout the, the three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry? Most of the time they want to kill him. They want to hinder others from hearing Christ. Keep others from hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And I, and I read all the way through this part, particular part because that's, in a sense, what is happening with Cain. And what happens to all of those who follow the seed of the serpent. Where you do not enter in yourselves, but you want to keep others from entering in. Never gets the key of knowledge. Never gets the understanding of the way of life. And so we try, you know, man tries to figure it all out by themselves. Go in their own way. Do what's right in their own eyes. How many times do we see that in scripture? Jesus calls Abel a prophet and then he commends him as the first martyr. But more importantly in this passage, Cain by implication serves as the example of those who are without faith, desiring to remove or to eliminate the way of life, which is the key of knowledge, neither entering in to the truth and preventing others to enter. So walking in faith, Abel was enabled to be master over his inherited sin nature. And again, listen carefully. Walking in faith, Abel was enabled to be master over his inherited sin nature. Now, he wasn't free completely from his sin nature. Why? Because he was still in flesh. And I'm sure that many times in Abel's life, he probably offered every week a sacrifice unto God. Remembering, you know, these things are probably not pleasing to God. And I don't want to hold on to this guilt. But God said, if I bring this sacrifice, I'll be clean. It's a picture of Jesus Christ coming to die for our sins, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So he wasn't free completely from his sin nature, but he wasn't enslaved to it as his brother Cain was. See, Cain was enslaved to his sin nature. Now, understand, you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, because he is your lamb. 
John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus Christ. Hadn't seen his own cousin, but on the day that he first sees Jesus, what does he declare? John 1 verse 29 says, The next day John sees Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus is our Lamb. Sacrificed for our sins. Sacrificed in our place. And as with Abel, saving faith should lead you into a daily walk of faith by which you are enabled to be master over your sin nature. No one is completely free from the sin nature in this life. But no one need be enslaved by it either. It continues to be a part of us until a physical body is changed at the coming of Jesus Christ or until we leave our physical body behind in death. But until then, the scriptures teach us that Jesus has broken the power of our sin nature and given us the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to have victory over it every day of our lives. Every day of our lives, we can have victory over the sin nature in our lives. The fact of the matter is, we need to be dead to sin every day and alive to Jesus Christ every day. Dead to sin every day, alive unto Christ every day. Every day seeking the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit into your life, the seeking of the, the, the outpouring of the Spirit every day in your life. Every day. Not just on Sundays. Every day. Consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verses 11 through 14. He says, Likewise reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let it be the king in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. In other words, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't give in and just give them over to sin. But yield yourselves unto God. Present yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. But again... Don't misunderstand what grace is because the statement in verse 14 at the beginning of that verse is so crucial to our understanding. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Because we are now under grace, sin does not have to have dominion over us any longer. That's the grace of God in our lives. You are saved by grace through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin means take inventory on your life. Take inventory. Examine yourself to see that you are in the faith, Paul said. Examine yourself, take inventory on your life, and then look back to the cross where your sin nature was crucified with Jesus Christ. It is there where your sin nature is to be left. The words of Paul in Galatians 2.20 are so, so crucial to our lives. I have been crucified with Christ, he said. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I've been crucified with Christ. Have we made that confession of faith today? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies implies an internal warfare by which the power of the sin nature can be mastered if it is fought in the way and with the resources that God has provided. Do you know how much and how precious the resources of God's word is to that respect? That you have prayer, access to God every day? Yield yourself unto God reminds us of the moment by moment availability of the power of God that the Holy Spirit who, who dwells in us is available every day. So then, Paul says in Romans ten seventeen, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing. Have you heard the word? Have you heard it? Have you listened to it? Faith comes by hearing. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice, a greater sacrifice than Cain. By faith. He heard it, and he listened, and he responded. Cain and Abel had no doubt been told of fig leaves replaced by garments of skins. To say, you know what, you cannot save yourself. You cannot cover yourself. You cannot redeem yourself. Adam, uh, I should say Abel believed that, but Cain did not. Abel took his place before God. Listen. Abel took his place before God as a guilty, lost, helpless sinner needing an atoning sacrifice. His sins were so scarlet in God's sight that only the shedding of blood could atone. And so in some way and in some measure, great or small, Abel looked to Calvary. But he didn't look back, he looked forward to Calvary. He believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Cain, on the other hand, did not. And we'll examine his dilemma next time. Our focus will be on Cain next time. But let's close with the words of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, and he says to him, Fight the good fight of faith. This is my encouragement to you, by the way. I'm giving it to you free. Fight the good fight of faith. Is not the fight of faith a daily occurrence in our lives? The spirit wrestling against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit each and every day of our lives. So we need to fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Do you desire that eternal life with Jesus Christ? Do you desire that hope, that promise, that wonder of what it means to be with God and with Christ forever and ever, before his throne in eternity? Oh, that we would have the very same heart as the old preachers of, of the Puritan times who said, stamp to God, stamp eternity, God, on my eyeballs, because that's all I want to see. That's all I want to know about. And I want to live my life on this earth knowing 
that there's an eternity beyond this life. Because I know it, I believe it, I will be there. Not because of me, not because of my works, not because of the things that I've done, but because of Jesus Christ, who died for me, gave himself for me. Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. Yes, every day. We need to fight that fight. In Paul's life, at the end of it, he would say, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have fought the good fight of faith. I want you to be able to say that too. When it's our time to go home, I have fought the good fight of faith. Let's pray.